0: When John Aldridge fell off his commercial fishing boat 40 miles from the eastern tip of Long Island, he didn't expect to make it out of the water. Now he and his fishing partner, Anthony Sosinski, are proud to call themselves Montauk's only fishermen with a book and a movie deal. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Andrew Seeger. Today I'm out on the Anna Mary, John and Anthony's fishing boat, speaking with them about their experience. A little later, I'll talk with Commander Jonathan Teal with the U.S. Coast Guard. He was the Chief of Response at the Long Island Sound Sector at the time John went missing, and he headed the rescue mission.
1: Just
2: to
0: start off, John, do you want to tell me about the night you fell overboard?
2: Uh, well, we are lobster fishermen. We, uh, we fish 50 or 60 miles from land. Uh, it was a typical fishing trip for us. We left at 8 o'clock at night, and uh, we steamed out. One person stays awake while the other two go to sleep, and then we rotate through the night. Um, I was on watch, and when I uh, was pulling on the cooler handle, to, I was moving a cooler off of one of the hatches to get into one of my tanks. Uh, the handle had snapped, and I went flying out of the back of the boat about 2 o'clock, 2.30 in the morning, uh, 40 miles from land. Um, you know, game on now. So, uh, yeah, you know, I'm in the middle of the ocean, floating, panic, can't believe today's the day you're going to die kind of a situation, you know.
0: Right. And so, Anthony, you've you've known John for, for how long?
2: About 40-plus years. We don't
1: have to tell how old we are, but... <laughs> Forty years plus, you know, we went to elementary school together.
0: Right, and so you wake up and John's gone. What are you thinking?
1: Well, our other crew member, Mike, woke me up, um, and it's like, John's not on the boat. And, you know, the first is disbelief. You don't believe it. Um, you're basically in shock, uh, that this is really reality. And, uh, you, you don't want it to be, you know, you, you can't believe that this is going on. But, um, it's reality at that given moment that, you know, he's in that situation and, uh, I would have to figure out or attempt to figure out where he is.
0: Right. So what's the first thing you did when you realized?
1: Um, well, I turned the boat around, um, you know, i marked down my, my position of where I was and I phoned the U.S. Coast Guard and, um, explained that he wasn't on the boat and, um,
0: I told them I was in shock. Right. And so you were you were hopeful they were to come come looking for you? Well
2: that's, yeah. I mean, that's the only hope you have. I mean, you know, it's a you know, we I really was a speck in the sea out there and, and to to think, you know, you might not get found and it's just a whole whole mental game going on.
0: Right. So what were you thinking when you were yeah. out there?
2: Just trying to uh you know, trying to stay positive, trying to stay alive, trying to put myself in the best position to be so that they can find me. You know, that was my goal all day long, just trying to be in the best position and try to stay alive through the day.
0: Right, and so tell me about the boots. Yeah.
2: Well, immediately I realized the boots were my salvation when I hit the water and they were very buoyant. So I had nothing else to grab onto. I grabbed onto my boots and and uh, got another breath. And then I, um, then I emptied the water out of the boot and, and created an air pocket, and pushed it back under the water and put one under each arm, and I had a uh, makeshift life jacket.
0: So, while John was doing everything he could to stay alive, Anthony was doing everything in his power to find him.
2: Well,
1: you know, they're, they're, the Coast Guard's asking me questions because they don't have anything to work on, and everything that I'm telling them, they have this, you know, which I don't know this at the time, you know, they have, like, a computer program that, um, that tells drift and currents and you know they try to make a search pattern but the problem is is I never knew where he fell overboard because I had not seen him for the boat had traveled a 50, 50 more miles than the last time I seen him so to so my goals would attempting to try to shrink the search pattern down so that we can have our search party of people, civilians and the Coast Guard, um, you know, locate him. And um, so throughout the day they kept asking me more and more questions and, you know, and then I discovered that um, one of the coolers on one of the hatches had been moved and there, there was the broken handle of the cooler. And I started putting the pieces together in my head knowing John and I had been Doing this particular job for so many years together that he was probably working on a refrigeration system. So I, you know, it, I basically attempted to try to figure out where the boat was at the moment that he could have went in the water. But this water is moving. So, you know, even that's a crapshoot because when he fell over compared to where the water would be is not in the same exact place. So, um, you know, but as time went on, the only hard evidence that I really had was this broken cooler, was these pumps that we have that pump the water in and out of the tanks, so I only used that as hard evidence because everything else was not really evidence. I mean, things that the other fishermen were finding floating in the ocean, turns out that they never came off of our boat. You know, people find gloves, so they find a bushel basket, they're finding things floating, and they're reporting back because they're trying to help, and we don't know what clue is. So, um, you know, that, that's um, how the day was going. But the entire time, I had more and more local people in our community, in the fishing community, chiming in and saying, you know, we want to help, we, you know, where do I look? So it, it kept me attempting to, to stay on the mission of we have to find John. Because you don't look for a dead person, you're looking for a live person and you're willing him or attempting to will him to be back on board somebody's boat. So you know, you, you're keeping your spirits up even though it's a, a doom and gloom situation. You know, I mean you, you, know, you just want to cry, really.
0: Right, and so have you heard of this, thing, this sort of thing happen before? Like has anyone from this, this neighborhood ever gone through anything like this before? You well,
2: never come home. Yeah,
1: if they don't come home, and I think that's more of why um, you know people want to help is you know they're in the same boat themselves. I mean, we're all out on the ocean, you know. And John being in the water, um, we had this you know his his story on how he stayed stayed alive is so incredible that it just makes the story so much better because he used. Everything he had to attempt to keep his lips above water long enough and had the will to live. And, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Fordham Conversations on WFEV 90.7 FM. I'm Andrew Seeger, and I just spoke with John Aldridge and his fishing partner, Anthony Sosinski. They're sharing the story of John's miraculous rescue out at sea when he fell overboard in the middle of the night, miles from Long Island's southern coast. Heading the search and rescue mission from the Coast Guard base in New Haven, Connecticut, was Commander Jonathan Teal. He was chief of response at the time John went missing, and now he even tells his students the story when he teaches classes at the Coast Guard
3: Academy. It's a case that I remember quite often. I woke up that morning, I was coming in and doing my typical routine just listening to the news and I get a call from my counterpart over in Rhode Island who says, hey JT, I hear you got a pretty ugly one. Let me know how I can help. And I had no idea what he was talking about. So I tried to politely get off the telephone and Well, if you need anything, let me know. Okay, thanks. And then I call the command center to say, uh, what's going on? And we had just gotten the case. What winds up happening is because the radios uh, interlinked were so close, they were hearing the same case as we were hearing it. They were briefing their search mission coordinator. And while my folks were doing what they should be doing, responding to the case. So I call in what's going on, don't know much. I uh, got a call around 6 o'clock, the captain says that his one of his mates has fallen over, and the last time they saw him was 9 o'clock last night. And that's all I have, sir, and for me it was okay. And they took off and started to run with the case, and then for about 15-20 minutes while I'm driving into work, I'm just starting to think about everything that's going on. And, and what that means, from 9 o'clock until 6 o'clock, that's a lot of time. From five miles to forty miles offshore at that point, I already know that that's not a great case so that's what I had to deal with driving in
0: then when you got here, what was it what was the scene like when you got here
3: so walking in, come into the command center and uh, To anybody else it'd probably look like chaos because there's people moving all over the place the radios are going it's pretty loud but in there they all have their roles and they're all doing their roles like they're supposed to so I walk in and what I typically do is I just walk to the back and wait Um, I know that they're gonna come and tell me what's going on when they have a moment to come and tell me what's going on and so wait listen watch what's going on and I start hearing how the case is being prosecuted. And at that point, it's it's noisy, but it's, it's very typical. So early on in the case, they don't wait for me to launch the boats. They get the boats underway. They've contacted the station, said, you need to go. They are, are starting to work on patterns. They're starting to work on communicating with people. And more importantly, they're trying to talk to the captain to figure out what happened. So when did he go over? Who's the last person who saw him? Can you tell me anything? Is he, does he have a life jacket on? Of course the answer is no, which is horrible for us, but okay, it's helpful. Uh, is he a good swimmer? Is he not a good swimmer? Um, is there any reason why he would have jumped overboard? Was there, were there any notes? Um, it's not something that we like to talk about, but it's one of those things we have to ask because it changes things. No, he's a great swimmer. Don't know we were supposed to start fishing. He should have woken us up at about 1130 at night I don't know why he's not on board. He should be here. And so it's Sometimes it's the same question over and over different ways. See if we can get any additional information The boat is underway a 47 foot motor lifeboat is heading out there to try to find him Uh, nice thing that we have is while all this is going on we have somebody working at the keyboard talking to District, and they're saying, we need assets. And, of course, District, who owns all the aircraft, calls back, and what are you looking for? And my answer is, I don't care what. I just need something in the air looking for this member. Well, I've got a fixed wing, an air airplane I'm going to send you, and I, we're also going to get a helicopter underway. So it's great. It works very normal. It's exactly how it's supposed to work. Uh, removing assets, but it's 40 miles. That's a lot of distance that we have to cover.
0: In a case like John's, the Coast Guard employs its SAROPS program, which stands for Search and Rescue Optimal Planning System. It allows officers to track 10,000 different possible locations for their target depending on variables like the water entry point, time, weather, and currents. Basically, they said it was like dropping 10,000 rubber ducks into the water and seeing where each of them ends up. Each duck represents one possible John Aldridge, and so Sarops helps them narrow down where the real John is based on current conditions.
3: When you think about 40 miles, he could be anywhere along those 40 miles. But when we do it 10,000 times, it kind of... It gives us areas where there's more of these points. That's where we search. And so everything, what somebody's wearing, how big they are, uh, what the weather is doing, what the water temperature is doing, what direction the winds are blowing, all of that comes into this math.
0: Right, and so what's it like you know, overseeing all of this. How how stressful is that? It's got to be a crazy job to just be overseeing all these different people looking for this one man out in the middle of the ocean you now.
3: It's incredibly stressful because it comes down to if we do everything right, the team obviously came together as they do. If we don't, there's one person who's responsible for that. And so that's... The responsibility that's the moment where if things go wrong it's on my shoulders now that said when I do this training down in Virginia that's what I talk to everybody who's striving to have this position is that is who we want in these positions somebody who understands that responsibility that when we're out there looking Our computer tells us it's a data, it is a point, it is a blob, but we need to remember it's a person, and it's not just a person, it's somebody's son, it's somebody's dad, it's somebody's brother, it's somebody's friend, that all the stuff that we do, and we have to do that, we have to be methodical, we have to be very scientific, we have to do it the right way, but we cannot never forget there's a human being involved. And so it winds up being a lot of responsibility. It was rewarding. We found him. One of the best days I've had in my career. But it does get stressful.
0: While the Coast Guard narrowed down the search area, John kept swimming. He dodged circling sharks, diving birds, and whatever other ocean life came to check out the Atlantic's newest occupant. Back on the Anna Mary, Anthony was leading a fleet of Montauk fishermen who had joined in the search. But he says the entire situation was almost surreal.
1: Within a short time, and, and where I'm going is a short time, is, you know, this is happening to, to him and to me in real time, where, you know, like, you're dealing with this situation, then all of a sudden, out of the sky, here comes a helicopter flying over you. Now was it a half hour? Was it 45 minutes? Was it an hour from the last time I called them? I don't know, but they sent the aircraft to fly over me. You know, I'm 60 miles from land. You know, so here comes help. And then you're, you know, you're on the, you know, they they have you on another station talking to the helicopter, which, you know, most people don't actually get to pick a microphone up and speak to the helicopter that's flying above you. You know and then it's coast guard ships in the distance and and then the you know the different response people that were chiming in you know i didn't you know it was like you're not alone
0: right and so did that help you keep going or you so know what what was driving For sure
1: you? i mean i think what was driving me is i didn't want to want to know that he had died so it's like we're looking for him and he's going to be found. And if you and it's the same with him staying positive. If I would have just been like, oh my God, he's not here. When they asked me, how is he a good swimmer? I'm like, he's a surfer and he's resourceful. It was like I was trying to even encourage them not to give up. It was everything that I was saying to them, even though I was in this frazzled thought here, was how do I respond to them to make to give them. That much more, all right, we need to find this guy. Because they got the tools. I mean, I'm in a seven-knot boat that no matter if you want to go somewhere and you're only 14 miles away, regardless, it's going to take me two hours. That's it. They're in a the helicopter that can go you know, 150 miles an hour or whatever. It's it's way it's a way better tool.
0: Right, and so did you ever see the helicopters fly over, John? I, I saw them all day
2: long. You know, all day long looking for me. And you know, they weren't in the right spot, and I wasn't in their right spot, so that's what made me try to get into their position all day long, better, better myself to have them find me, because I kept seeing them looking to the west of me, and they figured I was drifting that way, and I just had to keep, you know, getting closer to them so that they could, you know, hopefully find me.
0: Right, that's got to wear down on you, though. Yeah, right?
2: but, you know, you're in such a... Such a superhero mode, kind of, like, nothing bothered me, nothing could, you know, nothing mattered except getting to where I had to go. And if I had to get there, no matter what sacrifice I had to make, I took it. So it was just like, you know, you were on that mission and uh, nothing mattered. And that's what I, that's how I had to stay the whole day.
0: Despite all John's efforts, it still took more than 12 hours to find him. As the search progressed, Commander Teal remembers reaching out to John's family.
3: I always jot down my notes on what I want to say. Before I make that call I go off somewhere usually my office or somewhere and again remind myself we're talking about human beings because for three hours I've been dealing with math and probability and where's the best place to put assets and does this make sense? When do we think the person fell overboard? What should we search first? That's very methodic that is that's easy to do because that's my job the other aspect of my job though is remembering that we're talking about human beings so that I come out I take a couple moments figure out what I want to say but also just remind myself you're a dad what if somebody called you about your son then I call Mr. Aldridge and during that phone call with Mr. Aldridge I explain this is Commander Jonathan Teal calling from the Coast Guard I want to let you know that your son is missing and we are searching for him. I want to get that out right away because I need him to hear that and then I go into all the things that we're doing for the search. At some point Mr. Aldridge ask a question just like everybody else I talked I go through the information because I know that they're not going to hear anything because if I were a dad and somebody said your son is missing I would be I would still be focused on your son is missing once he asked me a question again then I go back through everything and I wait and sometimes I have to cover the information three or four times and it's a it's time because I have not lost a child but the times that I've had to deal with something significant in my life I know you only hear about half of what's being told and then there's a point where I hear him talk to Mrs. Aldridge and say Johnny's missing and I just hear Her in the background with a a cry that I imagine every mother would have if her son is missing. And it's just a horrible moment. It's a horrible moment for that family. It's a horrible moment to have to go through. I wish I could be there in person, but I can't.
0: To make matters worse, Teal says the rescue mission didn't go according to plan at all.
3: And we get to the point where the program that does all the math crashes on us. It does 10,000 computations a time. It adjusts for each search pattern out there. We eventually get to the point where we overwhelm it and it just stops. And it's kind of like most computer systems. You're looking at the screen and you don't know if the screen is frozen or not. And so we're sitting there waiting and waiting and nothing's happening. And so, okay, it's crashed. And at that point, we're in the afternoon, we already know that things are not looking positive. We know that with survival time, we probably have until sunset. And that was the thing that just kind of pulled the rug out from everybody's feet. And just, you want to take a watch that's working really hard and demoralize them. That was the moment when the system crashed and we have all kinds of boats out there, we don't know where he's at, and we know sunset's coming. And we get a helicopter calling us up saying, all right, what's your plan for us? Well, we don't ha- we don't have a plan because the system's crashed. I can't give you a good plan. You only have 30 minutes. You know what? The best thing for you to do is to go back home, put a new crew in the helicopter, get them out here, because then I'll have another four or five hours. So just go... Go home, get the new crew in here, and we're probably going to use you into the evening because we're going to need your ability to see at night. And the pilot pushes back and says, no, I've got 30 minutes of fuel. Use me. And they look, and it's, yes, let's use them. And, the, and we've got nothing. So at that point, uh, Mr. Averill walks up and says, all right, well, here's a high concentration of probability, Here's a spot, and here's a spot. Give them these three spots, have them fly this pattern. That should be about a half hour. We will use them. We'll use them in the highest chance that we have, and then we'll get the new bird out. All right, so I come down, and I'm in here talking to the deputy, and it's just one of those frustrated, cases. isn't going the way it's supposed to be going, a lot of responsibility, and now we're prepping to go and talk to the family for the second time, and I'm not gonna have good news for them. And so that's kind of the attitude in the room when Mr. Averill comes running in out of breath, and is like, I think we found him. Don't know yet, the helicopter sees something, we think we have him, but, and I think that's the point where we all hop up and we we didn't run, but we walked very quickly down to the command center, get in there, in time for the helicopter to hear the helicopter say something along the lines of, "We've got him, he's healthy, sunburnt, dehydrated, don't have enough fuel to land him here. We got to take him back to Boston." And honestly, I think we heard, "We got him, he's healthy," and all the rest of it was just a blur.
0: Right, and so eventually, when you did find him when that helicopter picked him out of the water what was what was it like in here and what was it like to you know deliver that news to his family
3: so in here it was that moment of everybody has been so stressed out running so hard and we also have come to one of these it's really hard to find him when we were all said and done the search area was about the size of the state of rhode island It's really hard to find a basketball or a coconut floating on the water in the state of Rhode Island. And we knew that. So we're all getting to this point of we're coming tonight, we haven't found him, it's tough. And then to hear the helo, we've got him, he's fine, sunburnt, dehydrated. Clapping, cheers. For me, the goosebumps that I'm pretty stoic, person, but I couldn't help the smile that day. And it's, it was a great feeling for about 10 seconds now. Okay. We got to let everybody know because it's not fair for us to have the info and dad not to have the info.
0: Anthony says when he got the news over the radio, the John was found he was so ecstatic, he couldn't help but shout.
1: You know, it's it's different if a child's born, and it's your child, and your child's born. It's the happiest day of your life. But this was like the happiest day of my life, not having a child. You know, you're just blown away that it's over with. It worked out. But, you know, it's over with. And that he's okay. Which even that is, you know, a miracle. Uh, you know, I mean, it, the sun beating on his face. I mean, all the things that could have I mean, last taken, week taken
2: him down. last week a guy fell You know, last week a guy, two weeks ago, fell off a boat right where, basically where I was and, you know. I never found him. They never found him, you know. Just, it's just very fine line it is. Very fine line.
0: So all odds were against you
2: pretty much? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When the Coast Guard Commander told me that, I was less than 3% of rescues that they found alive, you know like very fine line well, they you know, told you three percent
1: chance of rain today <laughs> yeah. you're you not to worried beach. about rain. <laughs> go no, rain, not rain, not rain go to the beach
2: i mean you know but you know it's uh it's you know what we do is super dangerous and uh, every piece of seafood you've ever eaten someone's risked their life for it you know no matter if it's clam or not you know someone risked their life to get that seafood to your
3: table right but you guys love it no yeah
2: that's what we do you know beats working on land too many crazy people
3: <laughs> for me, I joined the Coast Guard because we have one painting of somebody pulling a little little girl out of the water and it was, I want to be that person, I'll never get to be that person. That was the closest I had. That was the day that I was able to pull somebody out of the water. So for me, it was a great feeling.
0: This was the first time Commander Teal ever got to call a family back with good news. He says his only advice is, no matter how good of a swimmer you are, you should always wear a life jacket, because not everyone is as lucky as John. I'd like to thank John Aldridge and Anthony Sosinski for inviting me out to the and speaking with me. I'd also like to thank Commander Jonathan Thiel, Officer Rhodey Mason and everyone else at the U.S. Coast Guard base in New Haven, Connecticut. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFEB's Fordham Conversations, I'm Andrew Seeger.